Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, guys. Episode nine of Hashing It Out. Welcome back. As always, Colin's here. What's up, Colin? hi How's it going, guys? And today, our guest is Rick Dudley. Rick, do you want to uh, give, the, give the, the people what they want? A quick introduction as to who you are, what you do, and how you got introduced into the blockchain space? Yeah. Yep. Happy to do that. Hi, everyone. My name's Rick Dudley. Um, right now, I run an advisory slash consultancy business called uh, Vulcanize Inc. Um, we're building a database product or a, sort of a caching layer solution um, called Vulcanize DB. Um, I advise a number of uh, projects um, in the blockchain space, um, review white papers, help people with mechanism designs, um, et cetera, Etc. Um, I've worked on over 20 projects in the last two years. I started working in the space um, in like February 2015. Um, I got into it. Uh, a friend of mine uh, had a very small sort of like hacker conference, um, and and this was in uh, 2014, I think. And, um, well, it must have been, it must have been in July of 2014. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, but some of the people who came were, uh, were, were Dogecoin enthusiasts. And, uh, and I, and we, you know, made a relationship and started talking and hanging out and stuff. And then, um, in November of, uh, 2014, um, they invited me to hear this, uh, this presentation in New York City. It was an Ethereum meetup with, uh, that featured like a lot of the core people, Unta, uh, Gavin, Vitalik, uh, maybe like Jeff. I'm not. Uh, there's a bunch of people I don't remember exactly, but there was like a whole gaggle of them. And then uh, Gavin and Vitalik gave a talk, and I was immediately very skeptical. That was the, pretty much the first question, and most of my question was, you know, do you guys have any idea about these? other things in computer science that are like well understood that kind of make what you're saying sound unlikely. And they're like, no, we don't really know about those things. Um, <laughs> what are those and, things? Uh, <laughs> you can't so, don't gloss over that. Yeah, so it was, it was uh, my questions were around like were they looking at how Paxos works? Were they looking at how Cassandra? And then I started explaining things that used uh, Raft. I was like, do you guys have any familiarity with these algorithms? I do. Um, basically, yeah. Um, uh, well, the leader-based protocols, right? Leader-based, yeah, leader-based uh, consensus, sort of like they decide on a leader, and then there's a way of actually determining that the leader's correct, and then it's typically time-based too. So I think you have like an interval of time period where the leader has to respond, and everybody votes and elects. 
for a particular leader, and then that leader kind of decides, and then everybody sends their information to the leader, who then delegates, and then they can confirm that. Yep. So sort of asynchronous uh, Byzantine fault tolerant, or not necessarily in those cases Byzantine fault tolerant protocols, but but uh, consensus protocols or agreement protocols. Um, and so I sort of asked if they knew about that stuff, and they were like, "No, not really." And then I and then I sort of mentioned that 15 second block times. Uh, with, with full agreement would be difficult uh, simply because of the topography of the internet, um, and they didn't really uh, have a response for that. I don't think. I mean, uh, uncles in, in some regards are a response to that, but uncles have these sort of uh, really undesirable uh, side effects, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then at that meeting, Joe Rubin was like, "Okay, well, why don't you like stop asking these like really hard questions, and we'll talk about it later." <laughs> and then. Um, so we ended up talking about it later and ended up working at Consensus for four months. Uh, and then I left Consensus, uh, did a little road show for a company. Um, then I uh, ended up working at Monax. Uh, then while working at Monax, uh, consulting jobs were starting to come in, and then my consulting job load was greater than my Monax load, so I, I left Monax. Uh, great guys, happy to, you know, happy to have worked there. Um, and then, uh, and then I started doing the consultancy full time, um, and the consultancy sort of shifted. I mean, it was originally sort of a blockchain uh, platform as a service sort of play. Um, I'm not really a biz dev sales kind of person, so we weren't really able to. Uh, there were three of us at the time. Uh, both of the other people have since left. Uh, the company eventually, I think, was. The company was eventually just formed with two people. Um, now there's just one person. It's just me, the, the, the former um, business partner left. Um, and yeah, and so I, I consulted on some you know well-known projects. Uh, I, I did a lot of architecture work in early Omisego. Um, I, I did a lot of architecture work for Omega One that uh, I think really kind of, I don't know how much of it really made it into the white paper. Uh, I just don't remember. Um, uh, I worked on Casper with, with Vlad and, and, and Greg, uh, and I still am somewhat active in the Casper community. I try to be, but it's like pro bono work, so it's hard to find the time. And then I've contributed architectures to a lot of it. Like I said, you know, basically 20 different client engagements over the last two years. I have you know several contracts in flight right now. Um, uh, and that's sort of, I mean, I can get into real depth about what it is exactly I do for my clients and exactly, you know, all that. It's, it's primarily federated proof-of-stake networks, so you can think of them as, like, sidechains. Mm -hmm. um, that's most of what I do is sort of mechanism design for sidechains to make sure that you have incentive alignment. Uh, and that actually includes, like, a lot of stuff. That's not a simple... It's not like a turnkey thing. Like, like people have sort of asked me, like, how how, how would I how would you teach me to do my job? <laughs> and it's like, well, I have you know, basically, I started being really into computers, in in like really into it in 1996, and I you know I was I was 15 at the time, and like I still draw on experiences from that to like design the mechanisms that I design now. Um, so it's sort of like. Well, it, it you know that's a long time uh, between then and now, so it's hard for me to tell people like, 
oh, read these books, read this article, <laughs> and, and then you're and then you'll be fine. And I've definitely had those discussions, too, which has been weird. Like, there was a guy uh, who I was having this chat conversation with, and I was like, and he was like, how do you do what you do? And I was like, well, have you read this? Have you read that? And I, and I actually have a, a Medium post where I talk about, like, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus papers. And um, he's like, yeah, I read all those papers. And, like, and, he, and he said that, like, Lamport was really easy to read and understand. And I, I think that parts of Lamport are very easy to understand, um, but like the posing of the problem in Lamport, I think, is very elegant. And, and but the solution, but where he proposes a solution is, you know, I mean, part of why Byzantine fault tolerant consensus systems have developed so slowly is because there wasn't, there frankly, isn't still much of a need for them. Um, but also because the material was just fundamentally difficult to understand. It's, it's this exotic stuff that's really difficult to reason about correctly. So if, if college graduates are telling me, you know, whether, whether hubris or whatever, that this stuff is easy to understand, um, then there's some gap. There's something that I'm not understanding about what other people don't understand because I see broken systems every day. I mean, all, all, yeah. all I do all day is look at broken mechanisms and argue for hours with people about how their mechanisms are broken so, okay. 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 So let me let me stop you there. What does broken mean to you? Um, it means that they are not providing Byzantine fault tolerance, strictly speaking. Like I can be very precise in my sort of mm -hmm. lay. Like I don't. I'm not referring to necessarily a body of literature, mm -hmm. but I can I can say very precisely as my own language or in my own mind at least that there are certain um, types of resistance that your network should provide. And they're not necessarily economic or, or Bayesian rational actor types of things. Like, like, like rational actor assumptions are pretty worthless. Economic assumptions are helpful. They're super helpful from an operational perspective, but from a design perspective, they're pretty worthless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, so, and so you have to have a set of mechanisms that actually provide both a carrot and a stick for the, the various actors in your multi-sided marketplace to continue to transact uh, in perpetuity. Mm. Uh, and, so how do you and, feel about ca uh, C, you know, uh, Casper CBC? Like, is that, is that like, uh, is that, is that going to be, is that actually like, for instance, are just name some, some ones that you don't think are, are, are BFT. Um, I mean, there's a lot of like, famous things, right? And when we're talking like, broadly about mechanisms, we're not just talking about consensus algorithms, right? So some of my pet, my pet peeves right now are uh, token curated registries, uh, prediction markets, um, Dan, Dan Lormer's uh, work on DPoS. I have a lot of respect for Dan Lormer. He's, he, it, it's taken a bit of time, but he's pretty open and public uh, about, uh, he's on the record as saying that a lot of his stuff is never was intended to be Byzantine fault tolerant, and, and it's not. Um, so those are sort of like famous examples that I think like readily come to mind, and there's obviously like more weird corner cases and stuff, right? I'd say... So then I guess the question is, why, why are people designing systems that aren't BFT if there are people like you in the world who are able and willing and excited about it and want to make them... Byzantine fault tolerant. What? Oh, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, it's a really expensive feature in a lot of different. It's expensive along multiple axes, and uh, it's just not worth it most of the time. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, there's this whole history of people building out networks. You know, uh, uh, ICQ or any number of like 
I'm sorry, that might be too old for the audience. I forget how old I am sometimes. Like, uh, you know, I like, the ICQ team at one point, the uh, at AOL, they uh, they got bought up, and uh, for one summer, I worked with them. Yeah, small world, right? So, like, so like yeah, messaging platforms are notoriously not BFT, right? So, yeah. um, so, but you know, that's not really necessary, right? Your customers are still using the platform. Messages don't get mangled. Like everything still works out, right? I, I think that the reason. There's just this long history of not needing that type of security, um, and then uh, Bitcoin sort of came around, and then all this buzz sort of came around, and there was all this marketing. You know, I, I think that Bitcoin's main innovation was marketing, not technical. Um, I mean, I think the tech, I don't want to diminish the technical contribution at all, but people don't use Bitcoin in the limited use of it because of the technical component. They use it because of the marketing. Um, and I think that the marketing is what was really transformative. Uh, and so that's, that, that's sort of a circuitous sort of way of saying that a lot of people come to me saying they want a BFT solution, and I spend a lot of my time talking to people and saying, okay, but you don't need a blockchain for that. Okay, you don't, but you don't need consensus for that. Okay, but you don't. I, I spend a lot of my time doing that and trying to tease out if there is a real place to add Byzantine fault tolerance, and then like, okay, can you actually do that? And I've, I've kind of honed that thesis to a pretty precisely at this point. So mostly I work with federated proof-of-stake networks providing multi-sided marketplaces. So yeah, um, I think that's a great, it's a great, I guess, movement to something I've been trying to ask here that because you spend so much time saying you don't need a blockchain for this, you don't need a Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus mechanism for this, without giving away all of your work in terms of potential clients, where do you need these things? Why is it important to have this type of stuff? Um, I think I think that there's like the, the two major theses. Um, so like I said, it's sort of a multi-sided marketplace. And in particular, it's a multi-sided marketplace where the cost of insurance on a per-transaction basis is too high today. So like today you might have tried to build this multi-sided marketplace with the traditional computing system, but there's so little trust in the system that um, that you couldn't insure the transactions, so people never build the systems, so there's, so there's no transactions, so the systems just don't exist, right? So, so one is sort of the cost of insurance, and then the other is even when people are transacting and they do have insurance um, of some kind, uh, it's an extra legal activity. So you don't have a place to uh, actually arbitrate when you do have a disagreement. So an example of that uh, would be something like trade finance, right? Or like, you know, uh, insuring uh, inter ships that enter international waters. Or more precisely, like insuring an item that's on a ship that's in international waters. Like it can be very hard, even though everyone is sort of in agreement about the reality and everyone's willing to pay the insurance and everyone's willing to do everything, how to actually settle that up and like, and what currency is it in? And then what, what jurisdiction? And like, does the currency actually have, of course, has some impact on the jurisdiction? And so there's like these sort of other kinds of, um, and, I, and I'm of course picking, you know, uh, uh, the perfectly legitimate business uh, scenarios, right? So there's a, there's a third case that is sort of like to get into the gray area where, you know, let's say you're in uh, some sort of political environment where there's a tyrant or some sort of regime, right, that is like clearly unethical then you have these sort of extra legal problems as well because although you're transacting in, a, in an honest and moral way, there's some, you know, immoral uh, large actor trying to prevent you uh, from doing that, but then, 
you know, it's still legal for me as an American citizen to do business with you. You know what I'm saying? And then, like, hopefully your audience is, is sophisticated and they can sort of read in between the lines from those three examples. You know what I'm saying? Um, but those are kind of, like, the major issues. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that read in between the lines thing going on there. I think the one example that I use in particular is that one is when a dictator comes in, takes all the land titles, burns them, and then distributes the land to his generals. What happens when he's out of power? But, uh, right. Yep. That's a totally legitimate example. I mean, the, the Winklevi, um like to point out that uh, actual fiat currencies only last for like 26 years on average or something. Um, and that's pretty intense given how long some of the currencies have existed for. I mean, that, that means that there's currencies, like fiat currencies coming and going at a pretty high rate. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think those are like very much, um, you know, the land registry stuff is really big. Uh, one of the things that I sort of took for granted growing up in North America is we have a really robust um, addressing system for physical buildings. Like, you know, you can say, you know, 49... Mott Street or something, and that and that's a place, right? And you can figure out how to anyone can figure out how to get there. Um, even in Europe, uh, you know, still you know the Western world that 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 assumption doesn't hold. And then the rest of the world is just like forget about it. You know, it's so like they they literally you know you go with the guy who knows how to get to the village, right? And that's you know if you're not with that guy, you don't know how to get there. Um, and so just even that sort of thing where it's, uh, you want to have some continuity in spite of whatever government or political activity is going on. So there's some utility in blockchains uh, for that stuff as well. Right. All right. That makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we've all kind of identified those cases. What kind of cases are people coming to you where you're just like, hey, I mean, you don't have to be specific, but like, hey, come on, man, you don't need a blockchain for that. Like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, uh, to get a little in the weeds, there's a lot of data availability problems that are sort of, that emerge when you start using a blockchain that can't really be solved with a blockchain. Um, that's really the big one for me right now. Um, that's sort of what I'm focused on with VulcanizeDB, and it's the one that is sort of a big issue with uh, Ethereum sharding solutions as well as other people's. I mean, it's a fundamental issue with sharding solutions. Um, and so that's the one that really comes up a lot. I, and, and it's around, like, data storage, data availability, data retrievability, blah, 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 blah. And then, obviously, there's Filecoin. There's a lot of people, you know, in that space. But, you know, I really like to see it a lot. It's, it's not Osaya. Um, but it's not really... Um, they're kind of in the right part of the problem space. So they're not... They're actually a really good protocol. But there's other protocols where it's like, you know, you guys aren't actually solving anyone's problem because you can't mm -hmm. make availability guarantees. Um, and so that's probably, that's a big one where people don't need a blockchain. Oh, and the other one obviously is, is pretty much any solution where you have a centralized authority that has some hand-wavy edict to decentralize. And it's like, I mean, I, I see I can say this abstractly without, without ruffling too many feathers. You have this plan where you start off initially centralized, mm -hmm. and then because you believe in freedom or some BS, <laughs> you're going to take your profitable business with shareholders and counterparties, you know, other businesses that are making money from using your platform, and somehow you're going to, like, I don't know, like, go to some magician or something and put them in a box and when you spin the box around they're going to come out 
and they're going to want to take on all this liability of operating a node. And, and they're somehow going to transition from being a centralized, you know, cryptographic protocol to being a decentralized cryptographic protocol with like the sort of high level members sort of running a federation to then eventually becoming a fully decentralized protocol where anyone can participate in quotes. I've had many, many people come to me. Uh, it, I mean, in fact, that roadmap is very popular. It's not just people who've come to me. I've seen that roadmap in many, many places. And for me, each one of those, there's, there's, you know, there's three different states there with two different state transitions. The first state transition being from the centralized authority to a federation, and then another state transition from a federation to the, a closed federation to an open federation. Yep. And both of those state transitions to me are very difficult to reason about. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, and it's an, a purely economic problem or a purely business problem where it's like, Okay, so if we were actually successful in the first phase where we were centralized, then why does anyone want to take on the additional risk? Because right? they're not going to get better performance. I mean, that's sort of the argument. It's like we know that the performance is going to decline. So, I mean, that's the trade-off. So why would someone, you know, go from the centralized one to the decentralized one? And then once you've somehow convinced them to do that, so now you have these federation members who are now taking on all this liability, and you say, okay, so why would these guys who spent all this money and all this time to be able to absorb this liability and make revenue from that turn around and sell that technology, that, that knowledge, right? Not, not the computer technology, but the operational knowledge to the general public. Um, and I just, yeah. I just throw up my hands on that. I see what you're saying. And there are some things that centralized systems just do way better. I think Corey has said that many times himself. However, I, I think the, the, the number one place I see that particular federated conversation coming in is when you have to do things like regulators have to be involved. Or you know, just supply chains, actually, is a really good example. Corey and I were talking about that before you got on the, the call. He's playing this game called Factorial. And I've, uh, I've got some uh, experience in the supply chain space myself. Um, not a whole lot, but, you know, I've, it's been kind of a topic of interest for the past year. Um, and uh, I think when it comes to supply chain, the concept of visibility and end-to-end -end visibility has kind of been like the holy grail of that particular industry. And that they, the current model that supply chain has is being centralized means that you can only kind of see within your purview of your, your vision, your, 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 your assets as they travel through the supply chain. Uh, meaning you can't see things coming into your supply chain very well, and you can't see things once they go out of your supply chain very well. So a lot of businesses such as UPS and FedEx have added things like uh, better tracking uh, capability on individualized package in order packages in order to kind of like get you the ability to just kind of see where they're going once they're out of your supply chain. But that doesn't quite solve the whole problem, and a lot of the response time on that is within like, what, an hour? Um, so... Um, so a, a lot of the use cases that I'm seeing is I want to know not only what, um, where, where my package, where my, my, where my materials are going or what materials I'm buying, where they're from, but also the state of them in that temperature controls and, and humidity and, and various other things as, uh, as they go through the supply chain, I want full visibility into how they're being treated and how that's actually going and I see like that requires a level of trustless mechanisms in order to make it happen um, uh, absolutely so I mean I've definitely worked on those projects over the years um, you know designing those systems with people and yeah, I, I think your analysis is absolutely correct 
But what I would say, strictly speaking, is that in a lot of those cases, what you're looking for is a, is a set of protocols that facilitate a couple of different things or more than a couple. One of them is simply cryptographic attestation. How do I assert uh, that a statement is true using cryptography? You know, how do I sign something cryptographically and say that I, I believe this thing to be true? So that's one thing, and that, that, that really is outside the purview of, of, uh, of Byzantine agreement or, or you know, consensus. And then there's this other thing where it's like, okay, now that I've made this attestation, I need to timestamp it, right? So I need to get a bunch of people, with, and the consensus is, is, is helpful here, where I, I need to have, you know, I want these seven people to sign my message to prove that the message really was generated at this time. Right. Um, right? Sort of localized consensus mechanism as things are flowing through a supply chain. Right, exactly. And, and it may be that, like, you know, there's a regulator or an OEM who's, who's, you know, sort of leading that timestamping process, but if they were to go down or not be available for whatever reason, you know, the, the, the timestamping process can still, can still continue. Um, and so what's interesting about, about these sort of, uh, there's a lot of these sort of platforms where you're getting this massive stream of cryptographic attestations or, or cryptographic claims and um, you then need to par that down into something that uh, can be fed into a blockchain as a, as, a, as a true statement. So, you know, again, the blockchain for me is very much more about the multi-sided marketplace. And, and these cryptographic claims or attestations are the things that we're actually trading on in that marketplace. Mm -hmm. so, the, so the supply chain model, I think, strictly speaking, obviously there's a synergy between a supply chain and a marketplace. But the supply chain itself, by its very nature, um, the only person who can tell me who, if the guy moves the thing off the truck, is frankly the guy who moves the thing off the truck. Now you can do, you know, and we're getting kind of pedantic here, but you can have someone say, I put the thing on the truck, and you can have someone else say, I pulled the thing from the truck, but ultimately there's no real way to get consensus on those statements, right? You just Ah, there kind of is, though. Have you heard of a project called Loam? Uh, what's it called? Loam. It's a geospatial blockchain kind of thingy. I'm not. I'm not really. Uh, foam, foam space. Foam space. I don't know. Uh, maybe I got it. Maybe I got it mixed up. Yeah, it might be foam space. So um, foam space is a client I advise. So I actually provided a proof of location architecture for them, uh, or worked a lot on that. Um, and again, I would argue that um, a lot of that is based. I mean, actually, we have three different consensus algorithms or three different types of um, agreement systems in, in foam. Uh, and, so, and so we're doing, you know, synchronous agreement, asynchronous agreement. We're doing all, like a lot of different things there to facilitate that. And so that's what I mean. I mean, you, we're getting really pedantic when we start saying, you know, well, who can actually attest to the package moving? Uh, because you have to trust the package. You know, I mean, it's like at some point you're, you're, test, you're trusting the package. You're trusting someone. There's someone in there. That, that you might believe because of some claim they made on a blockchain, but when you're believing their claims, you're just mm -hmm. believing their claims. There's not multiple people that can attest to those claims. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like you have to recertify if you're going to be doing any sort of, like, handoff of... And then we do that now anyway to some extent. I'd like, um, to, I'd like to take a quick step back here and, and discuss kind of the idea of, I guess, distributed consensus in... in, in the way that it came to nature in Bitcoin. And that was like Bitcoin came to life. And I think this technological innovation was that 
it allowed you to trust a system as opposed to a group of people, which then allowed for digital scarcity that then got rid of the me like the mediators that in this case were what you relied on to say, I move money from some one place to another. And so you displaced the trust from a single entity to do that type of thing to a system where a group of people that were heavily incentivized to follow the rules. And so the consensus mechanism of proof of work basically is heavily aligned incentives. It's that only carrot, no stick, as you were saying earlier. And what you got out of that was the ability to displace trust and not rely on humans, but rely on a system that you believe to be fair. And isn't that kind of where you want to try and find like reasons to use a blockchain or at least a, a distributed consensus mechanism is when you want to get rid of trusting people as opposed to and placing that whatever that trust is into a algorithm of people who should be acting according as they should based on incentives and disincentives. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the stuff we were bringing up with, like, as things flow through a, for instance, a supply chain, you need to kind of have a system that's non-human, that kind of, to a high mathematical probability, can self-verify itself. Yeah, but the like, users of these systems are not, are not typically contributing to the consensus mechanism. You're relegating that to a group of people who should be acting fairly. So... No, actually, I'm not. Okay. So theoretically, there's nothing stopping a system from having like 30 nodes inside of a crate, um, and each one has their own sensor, which did basically basically runs its own little form of consensus. I mean, you, there's you know the the amount of computational work to fraud to fraud that would be kind of significantly high if you have a long enough chain going into the crate. So it's kind of like one of those things where you can build systems, I think, which are like little isolated truth mechanisms that exist outside of like a major train that doesn't require human intervention you could still kind of have people um, put things in and out of this truth mechanism and um, it will it will pass through uh, this this chain of, of, of ownership and you'll know that in this particular portion it belongs to that particular um, you know uh, trust mechanism and that trust mechanism has been checking itself into this main root trust mechanism this whole time um, so you know that it's it's also true um, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's sort of how phone works. Uh, I know a lot of, I don't, uh, the way that I engage with my clients, I don't have the time to, to track every project that is like plagiarizing from a client or every project that sort of had the same idea at the same time or all these different things, but because um, there's definitely a lot of plagiarism in the space, frankly, and I, and so, um, so like with, with the case of phone space, uh, yeah, it, it's about these zone anchors um, having synchronous uh, agreement amongst themselves, so they're using a synchronous algorithm. They then, you know, publish that the synchronous algorithm has been operating um, um, to an a to an asynchronous network, or like like a like an Ethereum. Um, and it's exactly like you said. But those zone anchors in that case are are relatively uh, large areas. So like you know. Um, you know, within cities, like several city blocks or something like that. But, yeah, so I strongly agree with that. But again, just to be like so somewhat pedantic, that agreement amongst um, those, those four synchronous uh, zone anchors um, is not really the same thing as, strictly speaking, as like a blockchain. Um, and so it's just about knowing what type of algorithm 
to apply to what type of use case and and why you're doing that. Um, um, so so I, I think that so on one hand I do agree with what you're saying. On the other hand, but to answer the sort of the other sort of uh, postulate or, or position that was proposed there, um, um, I I don't really think about it as replacing people. Um, I don't think of it as uh, people are somehow untrustworthy in this way that that machines are not. Um, I, I do have a pretty like extensive background in psychology um, and definitely theory of mind, um, and and I and that has certainly informed my view of it as entities. Like I I very much think of these actors in in these systems not as people or businesses, but as sort of these agents that have will and motive, whether that agent is uh, three people or seven people or a ro robot or whatever, a company, whatever. It, I don't try, I try to keep those assumptions out of my architecture. Right. Um, and, and so I don't really, so a lot of that construction is very like sort of alien to me or frustrating to me because I don't think of it as like, oh, we got rid of these unreliable people and put in a reliable computer, right? Because that's not what actually provides the security. I mean, people love to say, you know, trust in numbers and all this type of stuff, but without getting all, all that into it, you know, there's no way you can prove that there's no backdoor in your Intel processor. There's no way that you can prove there's no backdoor in your ARM you know, your Qualcomm baseband, which of course there actually are certainly backdoors in those. Um, you know, so we're not really, it's not really about that. I mean, it is, but that's almost to me like a digression, right? I'm, what I'm trying to ensure is that there's incentive alignment via carrots and sticks between the different types of entities within the system and, and as types, not as individual entities. And I, and I think that um, that's actually where Bitcoin um, has a flawed model, right? Because the, the, the guarantees that can be provided to an SPV client um, uh, regarding privacy and service and delivery, et cetera, et cetera, are very weird in Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin wasn't like, you know, perfect, right? I mean, it, it went through a lot of revisions there's some really amazing work around Nakamoto consensus that really is novel and brilliant, but there's a lot of like weird things, you know, but so much mental energy was put in focused correctly in that area that there's other parts of Bitcoin that don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and, can, and we've sort of, sorry, maybe I can rephrase what I, I can rephrase what I said there, or at least kind of how I, how I view this thing up to start off a blockchain is just a data structure that provides a, it, one of many properties, but the main property being a succinct summary of the entire state of the blockchain that can't be changed. So it's tamper evident, not necessarily tamper proof. And then what makes a blockchain network is the consensus mechanism of the group of people that come together to agree on that state and then somehow how a way to add state, right? And that that's a blockchain network. So people need blockchains, like the data structure for various reasons, but what consensus mechanism you use is heavily dependent upon how, like what type of people will be using the system. And so when you're creating these types of systems for people, solving that problem or answering that question on who's going to be use it and what do they care about each other is a very 
different problem depending on whatever the hell they're doing. Is that is that exactly what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I very strongly agree with that, and um, and that's why I ended up moving away. Uh, well, I I wasn't a big Bitcoin proponent or anything. I'm more of a Bitcoin proponent now than when I started um, working on these mechanisms. Uh, basically, because of what you said, where um, at first my intuition and sort of my 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 background as a systems administrator, which I hadn't mentioned before, but um, in actually deploying these uh, consensus systems, you know, rafts uh, sort of systems, um, it was like, oh. Well, like, you know, we solve so many problems without using Bitcoin. Bitcoin is really super focused on this one type of problem that it solves really well, which is kind of an exotic problem, like, in the world of problems. And um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that that is kind of a lot of times when you look at projects and you talk to people and, and how I end up saying, well, you don't need a blockchain for that, is these aren't people who studied how to deploy distributed systems, let alone decentralized systems, so they're just not using the tools that exist for that already existed before Bitcoin for solving their distributed systems problem. That's fair. Um, yeah. And and they they learned about distributed systems by looking at Bitcoin, and so they try to look at everything through the Bitcoin lens. I mean, that's how we ended up with the term proof of stake, which I, I think is a horrible term, um, because people were looking at. Uh, uh, you know, Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus systems, which had predate, you know, Bitcoin and were cited, in fact, by Bitcoin, you know, in the Bitcoin development uh, through the Bitcoin lens. And, and you get this very distorted view of what the problem space is when you look at it uh, through the Bitcoin lens. And so I think that's, um, you know, most Bitcoin developers don't have this problem. You know, most, most people who are serious in the Bitcoin space uh, in terms of architecture uh, don't have this problem. But, but many, many people who... Uh, talk to me about you know my work and what have you. Do have this problem? Yeah. Yep. So I think it's interesting you brought up Raft, and this is kind of a tangential question because I actually had some problems with uh, IPFS cluster recently. Um, not that recently, I guess. Maybe I guess now it's been about six months. But um, I noticed that like consensus mechanisms like Raft are far less resilient than, say, a proof of authority network. Um, meaning that I have to have a certain number of nodes available that is higher for them than anything in proof of authority. I think a proof of authority will work with like one node, really. Um, would you say that's an advantage or disadvantage to some of these other systems? Um, oh, that's an interesting question. So the the, the trade-off there that uh, wasn't really being discussed is the reason you need a lot more nodes is because you're actually using that um, you're actually using that that over like you're you're using the resources. The reason, um, like, let's just take uh, the same. Um, let's say it's like uh, uh, so. Actually, one of the things that we did at, at Vulcanize is we replaced. So there's a there's a d database called CockroachDB. I'm not going to get into what that is now, but it's a it's a popular uh, fault tolerant database. Um, it's based on Raft. What we were able to do at at, at Vulcanize, I think we maybe actually well. We we did is we replaced Raft in that system uh, with Tendermint, huh. right? Um, and uh, practically, um, you know, we didn't really run a lot of tests on it, but it, you know, it worked at first blush. So let's just take like a sort of a simplified version. Like you took something like etcd and you 
uh, replaced. Um, sorry to get all in the weeds, but we got all in the no, weeds. That's what the show's about. Okay, okay. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, so if you look at something like ETCD and you replace a raft there with Tenderman, what you're going to find is you actually have less write availability um, because the nodes need to get agreement amongst themselves on the writes. So your write throughput on that network is going to go down, and you made a, a fairly fixed trade-off for you know um, stronger available you know uh, consistency guarantees uh, at the sacrifice of write availability. And unfortunately, this this sort of dovetails into confused conversations about the cap theorem that I let's avoid. Let's like try to not get into that quagmire of misunderstanding and just say that there is a trade-off. Um, in this model that seems a lot like CAP, but uh, strictly speaking is not really the same thing as CAP. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I, I think what you're saying, if I could just translate that, because I, I, is that basically because of Raft, I have more consistency at the sake of availability, but because I can go all the way down to one node on a proof of authority network, that node, pretty much, if I were to get down to that point, I would not be guaranteed consistency? Uh, well, in the case of a POA, um, you're basically faulted. Yeah, if you're, if you're really at one, let's just do like concrete numbers. If you had a seven node set and you're at, and you're at one node that's up, you're, you're faulted, right? So that data that you're writing to that one node isn't really, isn't really meeting the availability threshold. Um, but what, what, I guess, okay, so let's try this another way. So, I feel like it's um, lower than that. Click, uh, so eight, click for like, say for seven, you need four available at the time in order to continue the blockchain. Otherwise, it, it halts. It halts. Right. Right, exactly. So, right. And so, but those, but those four nodes, so in the raft, so let's say you have seven nodes doing raft and you have seven nodes doing tendernet and they're just running ETC on top. Uh-huh. Your seven nodes on raft are going to give you a higher level of throughput. In terms of, especially in terms of writes, reads it should be the same in theory. Writes, on the other hand, you'll get more writes per node out of raft than you will um, out of out of uh, tendermint. As you remove nodes, that write availability goes down in raft, and it doesn't go down when you remove those first three nodes on tendermint. Your write availability doesn't shouldn't really go down that much. Oh, I see. So it's but then you, but then it, when you remove that fourth right node in Tendermint, everything stops. And when you remove that fourth right node in Raft, things continue, but now you're in the danger zone. I mean, now it's going to keep going, but as an operator, you know that your network's basically done. And so... In Tendermint, instead of saying, hey, we're, giving, we're letting you guys run on this broken network that will never work again, they just stop it. Huh. Interesting, because I feel like I've gotten lower than that on, on proof of authority, first of all. So just over over 50% is not, I don't think, I, I think based I got the, down. Based on the protocol, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, is it, it enforcing that number. strictly? Yeah, it is. Well, I was able to write at one node. 
It's you're just writing. You're just writing. I mean, you're just in. You know, you're in some inconsistent state. I'm trying to be polite oh, about oh, it. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it, it, it will allow it <laughs> at, at that point. Yeah. So okay, cool. We're good. So yeah, I got a federated network, ten nodes. I go down to one. I'm still able to write because when everything syncs back up, it'll sync with that one node. So you have to really trust that one node. Got it. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Okay. Okay. Cool. So we're on the same page. Got it. But with Raft, you need two n plus one. Uh, or, sorry, one half. You can't go less than. But you can't go less than half, right? Of the nodes on availability. Um, well, it's but the read availability and the write availability are different. I see what you're saying about Raft is that it's it's with Raft as you go, you know, if you're if you're in good consensus like in terms of like above a halt state, the further node availability there is, the more re the more writes you will get. Whereas with something like with the Tendermint. If it doesn't matter as long as you're not halting. It's about the same um, right throughput, regardless of how many nodes are available. So you get a better you get better performance with Raft, but it's a problem once you get down past the halting state. Is that is that a, a decent way to summarize that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're kind of we're cutting some pedantic corners, yeah. you know. But but that's the gist of it. Yeah. Interesting. So. Uh, I'm wondering. You actually mentioned FileCon. Have you ever talked about any? Have you gotten into any conversations with people doing kind of distributed file storage at all? Uh, so we do it in Vulkanized DB. So that's a, that's a that's a piece of Vulkanized DB. Um, but we're not using um, strictly speaking. We're not using um, a global consensus for that. Um, we're not making any claims about global availability or global consensus. Um, yeah. It's ba it's basically a bond. It's a system where you use bonds. Um, and advertisements to create small networks, which ha which you have guarantees about data availability with. And the reason you have that guarantee is because you can generate a proof when they fail to provide data, and then and then get some assets, you know, get some um, value claimed uh, on another chain, right? Um, and and again, without getting too into the weeds about how you could generate such a proof, because you know it's very difficult to prove that something wasn't delivered. Right. right. Um, yeah. So this is the problem I'm actually struggling with, and maybe I can get into the weeds for you. Uh, basically, what I've uh, not even—it's not even the weeds. It's high level. High level. Basically, they've got a myriad of, of, of consensus algorithms out there, which basically like proof of storage, um, proof of availability, proof of network over, uh, proof of storage over time. So, like, there's all these like various approaches to try and figure out: Hey, did this person not only store it, but is he storing it and delivering it to everybody across the network? Because one of the problems, it doesn't seem obvious to a lot of people I'm discussing right now, is that when you want to distribute your 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 data, your, even if you like chunk a file and then send it to all those chunks to nodes across the network, how are you going to know that you're going to be able to retrieve that file back at any time from those nodes? Um, what they could do is they could hash your file, for instance, let's just ignore the chunk part and say they hash your file, like they do with IPFS. And then, and then you go to retrieve that file. The only person they're sending it to is you. But if you want to share that file with your friend, there's your friend will not necessarily pick up that file because they might block them. They might not actually send that file in order to say conserve bandwidth, but still receive the insensitization model around the distributed file system. So right. one of the problems that it's a huge problem right now that I'm kind of really particularly interested in is how are we going to. I know there's this. I, my gut tells me there's a there's going to be some kind of like aha solution with this. How are we going to be able to reliably upload into a fog like, you know, distributed, decentralized, you know, storage mechanism and with some degree of high probabilistic guarantee get your file back? 
Right. So, so very crudely, what happens in this example that you just gave is you have created a file, you have made a market, you say, if you, you know, store my file and uh, make it available to others, you know, someone's going to pay you a fee. We don't need to really worry about who's going to pay for it. Some, someone pays for it. And so you go out, you, you put that file out there, someone, or that order out there, someone takes the order, they're now the, the published, the, 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 the provider of a service. Um, um, that service provider is, is, and then basically what you have on chain is that service provider has also agreed to basically pay anyone who proves, to, well, they, they agree to do two things. Right. Either, either they will, well, no, they agree that if, if, uh, I'm sorry, saying this backwards, apologies. So yeah. when that person, when the service provider accepts the agreement, they also accept that if they don't prove, if they don't provide delivery to people, um, then, um, then they, uh, uh, lose money. And on the flip side of that, if someone tries to generate a fraudulent proof of failed delivery, uh, they lose money, right? So that's kind of in a nutshell, like how it works. There's a lot of problems that I'm not getting into around that. But, but basically, if you have it that way, it, and, it, and, it, and there's, um, this is a very... Um, this is a very weak incentive when the, when the service provider is truly a third party. And that's something that like, I can talk about it sort of like, like theoretically, but to talk about, I'm not in a position to really talk about the cryptography. Um, so, so basically what you can sort of say is, all right, because this service provider is at risk for not providing service, when I give them the file and they confirm that they received the file, when someone else goes to retrieve the file, uh, so now your friend goes to retrieve the file, that retrieval message is sent on, like, let's say it's Ethereum, right? So they send a, a message on Ethereum. That message is proof of publication on Ethereum. The, the, the bonds that everyone is making are in Ether, but all the file transfers are on a separate uh, network. Mm -hmm. So now your friend goes to Ethereum and says, I want the file. Someone says, okay, I have the file, right? And they start that process on Ethereum, right? Then your friend sends another message that says, I don't have, you know, and so you guys do that over a state channel or like this, like storage channel. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Yeah, and then something goes wrong in the storage channel for whatever reason, and the, um, and the, your friend posts a message to that same, uh, order that says, I didn't get these bytes from this provider. Uh, I want these bytes uh, from this provider. And, and it has to be, and there's issues, but again, I'm going to just hand wave my way through this. So they provide that um, to a provider. Now, if the provider never responds, um, and, and, and I'm sorry, so I, I skipped this up. So when, the, when your friend and the provider entered into the agreement, they both put in a bond. Yeah. Right? And so, so now they slow this down for a second. When they put in a bond, so there's a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain. It's gamified so that they can handle 
uh, file transfer. It's basically a generalized state channel, or maybe not even generalized, just a specific type of state channel which can actually facilitate the trade of information in a way that they can guarantee that that information, uh, theoretically guarantee that that information has been uh, sent and received by both by the sender party and the receiver. Yeah. Okay. That's the so, Yeah. And so, and you can just do that with sort of signed messages, right? And, um, and broadcasting certain messages to certain people. Um, and so, so now we're in this sort of failure mode where your friend wants to get some bytes. Um, but Let's talk about the success mode first. How would they transfer the files in a good best case scenario? Oh, okay. So in the, in the happy path, um, uh, the user says, I'm willing to pay this much per byte for these many bytes. Here's a down payment, you know, here's an escrow. Um, um, Which could be part of the bond contract. Yeah, yeah, right. And then you'll also micro, you know, and you'll micro pay per byte. And if the micro, and so you do that via like a state channel kind of thing. So it's a tit for tat micro payment per byte, you know, for, for the data in the channel. And then if everything happens complete correctly, everyone gets, you know, their last byte delivered. There's no byte withholding, and um, and uh, the 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 payments have gone over that channel as well, and everything's fine, and and we just all go about our day. Um, so that's like I think that the I mean for me I, sorry I mean because obviously I've been doing this a long time, but for me that that happy path is sort of obvious, so I just I just forget to mention it sometimes. But right. so but basically at the end of the happy path, what they, they would do is they would take the the the, the receiver would basically certify that they got the same hash that was registered in the contract, the original contract. Yep. Same and then they just, okay, this SHA-3 is the same damn thing, or CACAX, whatever, the same thing. We're good. Yeah. Um, and, then, and, then, and, and then there'd be a timeout on that, on that bond, mm -hmm. and because there was no conflict, both uh, groups, both, both parties in that um, agreement would get, their, would get their, you know, most of their, um, you know, the vast majority of their, of their money back. Right. Right. So uh, that's a happy path. Now the bad path. Let's just throw. Th there's a there's a bite in there. That's um, let's just say. Um, hey Rick, you're breathing into your mic. Oh, sorry. Let's just say. Let's just say uh, somebody the uh, the sender decides that they're going to send a zeroed out byte um, to the or chunk zeroed out chunk of the file or whatever to to the uh, to the uh, receiver. Receiver goes um, receives that and. Assuming no, like you know, CRC, you know, no, 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 no error correction going on here. They they receive that byte, and when they hash the entire file, they go, "This file's wrong." Yeah. Well, okay, so that's not quite a good example, but well, let's say that there's okay. CRC, right? So they see that the packet's bad, right? They're not, they don't have to scan the whole file, mm -hmm. um, or the file is relatively small, so it's not too expensive to scan the whole file. Mm -hmm. um, they see that they are missing some data, and then what they would do is they would request for that data to be replaced, and and there would be a, a timeout on that. So if the data is not replaced within that, if that, and then that the problem is, is that really you have to um, send that replacement data on chain. Right, which costs costs a transaction fee. It's very, 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 very expensive. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so if you say that that missing data, 
and so and so if all of the missing data is provided on chain, then um, uh, that user loses a little bit of money from their escrow, um, but they get all the data. What about uh, arbitration channels? Yes, so, right. So that's the next thing, right? So the next thing to do. So that's one answer, right? So one answer would be to arbitrate that, right? But there's also an easier answer, which is, um, and and the problem here is like um, it's been a long time since I read the proof of retrievability uh, paper, right? Like the proof of verifier, proof of retrievability stuff, um, which basically says that all the data is there because you're interactively challenging the host very inexpensively. You're providing these very succinct, inexpensive proofs that require the storage to, to, to prove that all the data is there. And in actually doing those challenges, you're getting the full file. So if you want to do the full chat, if you want to get the full file, you just do a bunch of these challenges and eventually you get the full file. And I think that'll work. Uh, that's proof of retrievability and, and, and you don't need any arbitration for that. But uh, no one's done that yet, to my knowledge. Like, like, there's no protocol. We have a B talk on it, but there's a few B talks on storage, and like, they were all kind of like pointing out the flaws in each one, and they all seem to have some sort of weakness. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, if we're going to build this large decentralized file storage system, which is something I really want, I want, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to see that happen. Um, uh, then, you know, that's when we really start taking back our data. You know what I mean? When we can chunk up files and set it out. Yeah, I, I think the answer is to do it P2P. Um, and and so the, the way that, you know, philosophically or theoretically I solve this problem is that the, uh, the publisher and the um, storage provider uh, are the same entity. Um, and that actually simplifies things a lot. Um, and, and then you kind of go back to the sort of prove or verifier model. Um, the problem with the proof, I think, if I recall correctly, the problem with the sort of uh, proof of um, retrievability, uh, file coin, proof of space time issues are mostly around performance and not really around uh, failure modes. Um, I could be completely wrong about that, though. It's been over a year since I read those papers. Um, yeah, it's a complex topic. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where it's just a personal fascination of mine. I'm glad that I could finally have, like, a discussion with somebody about it. At the moment, the, the oh, yeah, no, storage cool. came up. I knew this was going to go down to a rabbit hole. Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's bring it. Let's come back for air for a little bit. Uh, start wrapping up a little bit. Uh, Rick, what are you excited about? In this entire space, over the, like in the next maybe six months. Yeah, so I'm super excited about uh, proof of location. So the phone space team that I'm working with, I'm I'm very excited about um, you know the opportunity to build out that hardware because it, it does require I wouldn't quite say custom hardware, but there's a hardware component. Um, and so I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm very excited about the work that you know um, MakerDAO sponsors uh, the Vulcanized DB de development. Um, I'm very excited about uh, about that work. Um, I think the Vulcanized DB as a caching layer. Again, I didn't really come on to like pitch a product or whatever, but I think that the Vulcanized DB sort of solution uh, 
ultimately will solve a lot of pain points in the community and sort of facilitate, uh, you know, open open source block explorers. Uh, we'll facilitate some of uh, Kumaviz, uh, the guy from MetaMask. He's had these sort of proposals that have been um, that they've been slowly working on over two years um, with regards to making Ethereum state available uh, uh, in the browsers and directly. Um, and I mean, so so that that means that you can do sort of uh, very nice things with wallets and contract watching. Um, and that's a lot of uh, related to a lot of the work that we're doing at Vulcanize DB, um, sort of seeing those same pain points and and actually uh, having some developer hours devoted to solving them. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about that stuff. I think this um, state problem uh, in general. I mean, we talk about sharding. Sharding is the same thing. I mean, it's not just the sharding piece of uh, state availability. Uh, obviously, data availability is also a related uh, topic to to this sort of state availability issue. Um, I, I think it's a fundamental problem with any sort of smart contracting platform. So, our space, another team I work with, um, also has sort of addressed, you know, has provided solutions or is, is addressing that that same topic. Um, um, I, I think that I think that that you know people actually really. I think we have to solve a lot of these state issues before we can start meaningfully solving the data availability for like for like movies or something. Um, well, movies are an interesting case because uh, movies have keyframes, uh, so there, there's an interpolation between frames between every keyframe. Um, so I and K frames, interpolated frames and keyframes. I think I hope that's yeah, what they stand right. for. No. Um, and, uh, and so it's actually very easy to deliver the keyframes. Uh, if you just encrypt the keyframes, um, you can have some guarantees around delivery that are pretty nice. Um, but for other large data file types, uh, especially like state information and, and other, other types of um, large blocks of binary data, um, having some sort of ad hoc distribution of that data that's primarily based on reputation um, I think is uh, I think that's just a huge piece uh, that's like sort of like a baby step or like a half step um, from where we are now to the sort of the sort of data problem that Filecoin is sort of and Swarm have sort of set out to to address. I think I think Filecoin Swarm I like Sia coin, but they're different. So I think I think Filecoin and Swarm, the problem, the thing that they're missing, the reason I started thinking about the foam space problem, out, you know, because I was thinking about that before I met that team uh, or engaged with that team, um, and the the problem that I was trying to solve was proving that my data in my Filecoin sort of algorithm, you know, from based on the Filecoin paper, how do I prove that the data is actually on two different spindles? Um, and 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 foam space actually facilitates that proof, um, and so I, I think that um, once you have both of those things in place, you have this sort of proof of retrievability uh, stuff really sorted out, and you actually have like a uh, even quasi viable proof of location, like a like a, a pretty rock solid one. I, I mean, foam space is much better than quasi plausible, but like even like a some sort of you know if something were to go wrong somehow, and you didn't fully trust that protocol. Uh, for some reason, even that would be an enormous um, step forward. And like you said, um, actually having truly decentralized storage of data. I, I think that personal storage of data is, frankly, to me, more important 
mm -hmm. um, and, and easier to achieve. But they're absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right that like large scale, like petabyte, terabyte yeah. decentralized storage um, is really complicated and and um, and hard. Yeah, um, I've been looking into weird things like turbo codes to see how much error correction we can actually fit into a system so that it has some sort of innate, you know, fail, you know, uh, resiliency to just whatever protocol we use to. It's it's a really complex topic. It's really exciting. I'm glad we got somebody to talk to it about towards the end there. So I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, no, it was really great having you on, Rick. I really, uh, really, really, really enjoyed this uh, this talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm gonna do a little bit of uh, advertising. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter primarily, AF Dudley, A-F-D-U-D-L-E-Y, uh, zero at the end of that. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's probably the best way to, like, follow what I'm doing. And um, although I, was, I guess some of my tweets are relatively cryptic. Um, again, I'm not really a marketing guy. Yes, they are. But, but, um, but it's really a lot of those tweets really are based on even some of my tweets that seem completely, some of my completely off-topic tweets really are completely off-topic, but, like, if I'm talking about, like, government stuff or politics, that's because, or, like, retweeting some political thing that's happened, that's because of the importance of governance in the blockchain. Yeah. Um, yes. So follow you on Twitter and uh, anything else, any social media other than that that you use? Uh, Vulcanize, I think, what's your URL for that? Uh, it's vulcanize.io. Um... You know, you can look at, like, an old landing page there. That's about it. Um, the the best way to reach me would be to sort of, like, at me at Twitter. Uh, somewhat unfortunate, but maybe kind of cool, like a weird futuristic uh, way of doing things. <laughs> uh, or find you at a, at a conference. That's how I met you, and that's how, I guess, we became uh, acquaintances. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was great meeting you, Rick. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I'll have you, have you on again at some point. Yep, thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you later. Sure thing. And for our listeners, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, you name it. Hit the subscribe button. Give us a review on iTunes. Do whatever you can. Hit us up on Twitter. Hatching yeah, follow me it on out Twitter, man. Pod. Yeah. I'm at, at Corpetti, and Colin's at, at Colin Couchet. Talk to us. We'll talk back. Yeah. Later. All right.